Hot off the press from Maybelline New York, it's new Lifter Plump, an intense plumping lip gloss formulated with chili pepper to deliver a heated sensation for an instant plumping effect that lasts. From eight sizzling shades like Blush Blaze, Red Flag, Hot Honey, Cocoa Zing, and more, an extra-large wand applicator transforms lips in one swipe. Learn more at Maybelline.com. For a limited time, get 10% off your Lifter Plump purchase on Amazon with code 10PLUMP. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of McDonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. And I have will shine like the sea. That was creepy. That was very creepy. <laughs> I love that Oh my song. God, hold it. Oh my God, I'm so excited to do this. It was so funny because I had to miss an episode last week and you guys were like, well, we'll just do Clueless without you. And I was like, uh, you are whatever as if not doing <laughs> Clueless without me. I love Clueless. It is so good. And it did not disappoint upon a more recent viewing. I just absolutely adore this film. Yeah, it's a... Uh... I'm Natalie Jean. It is one of my top five like comfort movies. Yes, it's so rewatchable. Yes, I've seen it so many times. And especially right now when everything is so upsetting and putting it on, it's like sitting next to a fire. And then yeah. you're just like, oh, this is exactly what I needed. I'm in my fucking happy place. In the colors. Oh, it's, oh the it's colors. It's literally our Emma. And the other thing about it is that it's just so damn funny. Like, what I was about to tell you guys before we started, and then I was like, wait, I want to say it on recording. I went to go look up, like, on IMDb, like, the, you know, quotes. It is just, it's, it might as well be the whole script. It is just an yeah. endless barrage of quotes. The Monet and the, you know, rolling with my, rolling with my homie. With my homie. Whenever somebody gets hurt, I always go, can you do this? Rolling with bones. <laughs> and they go, fuck you, Holden. I need to go to the hospital. I'm bleeding. I need stitches. Rolling with my homies. Except for the fact that I honestly didn't realize it until doing this research that they say the lyrics incorrectly. They say rolling with the homies and it's rolling with my homies. Ah, that's funny. Wow. And I've, of all the hundreds of times I've seen this movie, I never realized that it was I've wrong. I've only ever listened to that song through the lens of Clueless. And so then I, I sat I and listened to it and I was like, man, this is such a good fucking song. It's a great song. I will say there's a couple of jokes too that I realize now went completely over my head as a kid. That whole part where she's looking for some herbal remedies. Absolutely. And then they say, we have coke. And she's like, no shit, you guys got coke too. I had no Did idea not, that was a drug no. <laughs> none, none of the drug references, most of the sex references, yep. I didn't understand it. And, and no, that, that or when yeah. they bring in the kitchenware when oh, when he brings in yeah. kitchenware for the uh, the, the the beach cleanup yeah. fund thing and it's a bunch of bongs. Yeah, the bongs. Yes. So funny, so funny. And, yeah, just the whole and and that just gives you a sense of when that movie came out for us. I mean, we were all in the perfect place. We were all like in our early teens. I'm pretty sure I saw it in the movie theater. I definitely saw it. I did it. too, but I I was. A preteen, so Jack, you would have been. Like I a was kid. eight. I right? was. I was a baby. Yes, I was eight years old I when can't... this came out. Right. What What year did it come out again? Ninety five. So I was 
just a teen. I was right. I was thir- thir- 14. Yeah. So, no, so you guys hit right at that sweet spot because I remember. So I watched this movie when it first came out because obviously y'all know I have older siblings, and in watching it, I didn't get a lot of it, but I immediately fell in love with it. And I think that for me, besides anything, was that I wanted to be them so much, but I didn't know why. And I now I realize it's because of the outfits, yeah, and that is exactly why that I always wanted to dress in that that perfect 90s aesthetic that now as a woman in her 30s I am able to do because I don't care as much about what other people think and maybe some of it doesn't look as good on me as it does on them but now I got the confidence to try it out (laughs) you rock it yeah it was uh, like a whole nother world for me and at the same time I had a little you know I went to a private school I was definitely around a lot of rich kids they definitely did not have any amount of style that you know, in like in comparison to these LA rich kids, but yeah, I, I definitely remember some of the vibes of that. But this film just performs such a magic trick of making you love these uber rich on paper. I should hate these people characters, and instead you were just so charmed by them, and you just love to. And I think that's why it's such an escape movie because you're just like, oh, I just want to be lost in dumb rich person problems. Absolutely. In high school for just yeah. a little bit, you know, and, and just take in the sights. Totally. And Amy Heckerling, which we'll talk a ton about, she really f- was able to find that balance because the director, writer, she's amazing. She's and we'll amazing. we'll talk about her. Yeah. And, and especially um, it comes off as a chick flick, even though it a thousand percent is not. It's not. super not. I, I definitely legitimately just enjoyed it. And I was one of those guys where now I'm... revisiting movies that came out back then that were for the ladies, quote unquote. And this was not one of those for me, even when I was younger and stupid about stuff like that. But did it, I have to ask, did it take you to the bone zone? I was about to say, I think a big reason why this slipped past the goalie in terms of a quote unquote, unquote, what it seems like a chick flick is actually not, is definitely how smoke, how turned on. When those Aerosmith videos hit, I, I forget oh, how much yeah. of a, a oh, sexual yeah. awakening I had watching those videos. So I of think course, for I think for men, women, girls, boys, straight, gay, the Aerosmith videos with Alicia Silverstone woke up a lot. Yeah, in me. so Did you guys hot. ever see the movie Crush? Yeah, yes. with Mark and Wahlberg that, with the and finger, bang, bang finger bang roller coaster. Finger scene. bang on the roller coaster. About. Well, Everybody. if you really wanna, if you really wanna experience Alicia Silverstone in a new light. Go see The Lodge. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, The Lodge is so good. That's awesome. The Lodge is so fucking good. Uh, but Clueless, though, is... I'm so happy that we're doing this. Yeah. What a great way to take your mind off of everything. And what an awesome way to just celebrate breaking boundaries. Because I didn't... I never really thought about this before, that this was the beginning of kicking off cool, more updated "Quote unquote chick flicks and teen and teen movies and teen movies. More, yes. Almost more importantly, John. The era of John Hughes was all but dead. Mm-hmm. No one was making movies for teens in this way, and this really opened the doors back up for a bunch of movies that we could trace back to the DNA of Clueless that we got to enjoy during our teen years over summers in the movie theater. So it's just such a weirdly important film for how daffy and silly and just fun and whatever it is it's also really brought back a genre that i think is really important because who goes to the fucking movie theater the most i mean i lived at the movie theater when i was a teenager because i was so bored i had nowhere else to go yeah it's the bowling alley the movie theater and like uh, sitting out front of the movie theater trying to get someone to buy a cigarette to the gas station next door that's you know? true. I did. I did actually have a ton of. I have a ton of memories outside of a movie theater. One including 
around this age, I was standing outside by myself and a group of older teenage boys with a video camera rolled up and went, hey, we're trying to, uh, we're having a contest for the ugliest girl in the world. Would you like to be a part of it? (laughs) And I was like 13 years old and I was like, I had no idea what to do. Oh Oh, no, what did you say? I just stood there and let them film me. They were like 18 or 19. They weren't like kids. They were like older oh did you my win God. did you win though did was there a prize win? i don't know i never got a present or a prize or anything <laughs> oh man uh i so wish that my 13 year old self was with your 13 year old self because i would have beaten the shit out of them oh man that would have been awesome or at least taken a bat to their car so i mean come cool. on it's true natalie at that time was a virgin who can't drive so i mean it, what it was true drive. <laughs> it's true and now see i always really wanted to be ty a thousand mm, percent mm-hmm. but down to the fact that I wanted the stoner boy and addressed like a tomboy and I definitely talked a little bit more like this. Yeah. <laughs> and I love I man, R.I.P. Brittany Murphy. Yeah. She's so Sucks, fucking man. funny. It really, it, so it's funny. such a bummer. And in preparation for this, I was watching a lot of the behind the scenes stuff again. And um she's just such a sweet angel of a girl talking about the movie during that time period. And then like they were doing like a ten year later whatever retrospective and she was still just so joyful and that like she had a light up presence about her yeah and And it it seems like they all really got along yeah they got and also this launched so many careers it's ridiculous Mm -hmm. this ensemble cast is amazing and even alicia silverstone she was on the rise but this made her full on a household name oh yeah she was just the aerosmith girl before this, right yeah and and yeah she needed that one more oomph and that was what clueless was well let's take it all the way back let's jump into this shit because we have so much to talk about and really start with Amy Heckerling, who wrote and directed this fantastic film. Amy Heckerling, born in the Bronx in 1954 to a bookkeeper mother and an accountant father. She was uh, had a Jewish upbringing, and both of the parents were working full-time. She had to, uh, essentially, she referred to herself as a latchkey kid that sat at home all day watching TV. She said, films were my babysitter. My parents both worked. They'd leave me at one grandparent in Brook in Brooklyn and one grandparent upstairs in the Bronx, and I would just watch old movies constantly. My two first loves were James Cagney and and Speedy Alka Seltzer, which I guess was a commercial campaign at that time. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. uh, so she ends up becoming more financially successful, or her family does rather, and they moved to Queens, where Heckerling felt very out of place at her new high school, which I'm sure is what. The Brittany Murphy character is kind of based on to the point where she enrolled in the high school art uh, in the high school of art and design in music. And by the way, I'm going to I'm going to plant a bunch of seeds through here that are just all show up in Clueless. Like there's so many little elements of her getting into the industry, all these little things. And, you know, I'll, I'll go ahead and just say failing her driver's test five times when she moved to L.A. All of these things are in the DNA of Clueless. Uh, Heckling said uh, at the time, this is where she discovers the actual concept of making movies. She said there was this small group of boys that were talking about making films like three of them. And I was so insanely jealous. It hit me that I was insanely jealous because who told them they could do that? Movies were these magical things that came from somewhere out of your TV set. And who said they were allowed to pick up cameras? My family didn't even have a still camera. In other words, just an actual like photo photo camera. This was going back before everybody had cameras with them 100% of the time. I was 14 when these guys were doing 
doing that. And she also talks about how there was this shitty kid who sat next to her that copied off of her all the time. And they did this project where it was like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And he said, he wrote film director and she actually wrote a uh, mad magazine, I think artist or report or, or article writer. And cool. she looked, mm-hmm. and she looked up and she was like, this fucking asshole is going to be a film director. Oh, <laughs> hell no. And, uh, well, that's that- what I, another reason why I love Amy Heckerling so much is that she, it's not, she's not as in your face about it either. What she really loves is that she is a very feminist film director that mm-hmm. while she was growing up, she thought over and over again that there was no way that she could ever really be a film director because she was a woman. Well, there were barely any at, there that, were, point. at that time that yeah. there, it was still starting, which is insane because honestly, it wasn't that long ago no. that this was the case. And she says later on that as a female, you can't just say, I think I want to explore. Mm. You're always trying to figure out how to just stay in the game. Mm-hmm. What I may have felt like doing, what I wound up doing, aren't exactly the same thing. You develop a number of projects, and it's not always the right ones that get made. So this is something that she will struggle with. Still, she still struggles she with it. She talks about how even when she already had a name with Fast Times and all this sort of thing, it was still hard as a woman to just get her own concepts and ideas over even with a resume that was undeniable and it's I think that was very true probably and her um her stamp on fast times at Ridgemont High she's also the director of fast times which we'll talk about yes um if you if you've never seen that movie please watch it it is one of the best teen movies of all time it was before we were even alive it was made I believe Mm -hmm. and it's still so funny so poignant so it's got like it's edgy but it's like edgy in a fun way Uh there's an abortion in it. That movie is nuts. Um, that movie is it, like, hey, it's so good. It's this like it's not fun, kooky at high all. school comedy and then all of a sudden it's just like abortion and mm-hmm. just sexual assault. You're like, what the fuck? The movie really <laughs> just addresses things that teenagers actually deal with uh-huh. in a lighthearted way. Because it was based on real shit. Because it was based yeah. on a real series of articles where this grown man went undercover at a high school in LA and fucking got all this well, it was based on the stuff. life too of Cameron Crowe right yeah Cameron Crowe yeah yeah yeah. Uh, she said, after doing as much research as I could, I realized that I would die if I didn't get into NYU, which is such a common, I feel like, feeling. And I also love- I was there. I got, and then I got into it, and I still didn't do it. You know why? <laughs> because that shit is expensive. It's so mm-hmm. expensive. Yeah, that was the whole thing. I, I auditioned, but my parents were even like, hey, if you get into this, I don't think we're going to be able to fucking afford this shit. No. Speaking of parents, her father definitely opposed for her passion for film, but he did give her a book that really changed things around for her as a, as a young person with an interest in film. It's called Classics of the Foreign Film, A Pictorial Legacy by Parker Tyler. It just had a ton of different foreign movies. She would check them off as she watched them. She watched so many different ones. And that's, so that's where we get, and this you see a lot, I think, with early on film students. She is getting getting a huge love for bizarre, uh, abstract foreign movies. She said, oh my God, how is it possible that you could just slit somebody's eyeball and that's a movie? It was just the <laughs> coolest thing ever. So I wanted to do things like that. Of course, that's a reference to Un Chin Angelou by Salvador Dali. Did which, you guys like, did you all see that in college? Yes, I yes. definitely did. I took a I film remember class that in college. Very much. And, yeah. Oh, yeah. I will never forget that image. <laughs> no, no. It's open. in there. Yep. And this is, a, I, what I dig too is, 
is that she is someone that, and we will see this later on, not only with the fashion of Clueless, but also with Clueless the musical, is that her love of old movies also really infiltrated her idea of what fashion is. Mm. And that is something that she has brought with her to, whether in a large way or in a small way, she's brought it to most of her movies because she has an eye for fashion, Mm -hmm. but particularly classic fashion mm. that is updated and that's and, what's really and almost cool. in a timeless way yes <laughs> and you can kind of poo poo fashion i'll poo on it no don't poop it. i'm gonna poo on it a lot of people want to poop on it but <laughs> it really does shape the world that you're watching and even if you don't know it directly subconsciously it really can change how you feel about a movie if the if the wardrobe and the fashion is kind of bullshit it's not as an enticing movie most yeah. of the right, time. Right, right, right. So go, going back to this like abstract part time in her life, she's making these bizarre little two-minute movies and at one point uh, decided, she said, I don't remember what the movie was, but I was trying to be funny instead of surrealistic. And people laughed instead of looking at me like, you're nuts. That was a very nice feeling. So <laughs> that's the turning point. She uh, ends up going to NYU's Tisch School of the Arts, but she had to take out a huge loan for it. And I just wanted to throw that tidbit in for all those people out there who are suffering or have suffered through the same thing. She also was stressed the fuck out about paying out the off this loan all through her. It's 20s. forever. It's a forever stress. Boom. Yeah. It's, it's a t- another timeless thing. <laughs> right. But while there, she made a musical uh, and it was apparently because NYU was going broke. This, the musical was about kids doing a kind of like, it was like seventies bell bottom kids, but talking and singing like they were out of a 1930s movie. It was really nutty, really weird, but it did win the festival at the college. She was super excited, and that's actually what brought her to the American Film Institute, where she continued to study, along with her friend Martin Brest, of course. (laughs) Please, Jack. (laughs) And Natalie, you're the one. (laughs) That's a rough one to grow up with. (laughs) It must have been. It's like John Coffey, though. It's not spelled the same way. Nah, B-R-E-S-T. Oh, that doesn't matter. No, it doesn't. No, it certainly doesn't matter. So Martin Brest directed Beverly Hills Cop, Midnight Run, Sin of a Woman. Uh, and they were big colleagues for a while, learned a lot from each other. And uh, yeah, they're in LA, but this is the thing. This, I loved this quote. I immediately thought of Jackie. I immediately thought of oh, every friend <laughs> I've ever had who made a big transition, especially when you are born and raised in New York City. I've talked to people mm-hmm. who are born and raised in New York, live there their whole life, and then they try to move to LA after having some success here. And it is always death, at least for the first like year or two. She said, I felt... So horrible my first couple of years in L.A. I didn't drive. I failed the driver's test five times. I was completely at the mercy of any of my friends who had cars, which makes you feel like an infant. Right, Jackie? Yes. <laughs> After being a 13-year-old on the subway going any place you want to suddenly being 20 and being like a prisoner, that sucked. Yes. I had no idea that the weather was the way it was. I had two pairs of corduroy pants. I get, <laughs> I get there and I go, oh, my God, I had experienced heat, but this was like horrible dry, rip your skin get off going crazy heat. Well, it's the same thing, I mean, too. Talk about fashion. We're coming here where everything I owned was black. Right. And then you're walking down the street and you stick out like a sore throat. I yes. still wear all black. I mean, I still wear all black. There's definitely a contingent of Los Angeles goths. Yes. Yes. Um, but, but it has its own, like, you're even wearing, Natalie, like, a cheetah print thing that I feel like still works in LA, even if it's a little gothy, right? It's I'm like, wearing currently wearing a cheetah print onesie and a black fanny pack <laughs> for anybody who's pretty, It's a pretty sick outfit. But that I have makes, not that put works. on anything but onesies this, this week. I that love is it. my nice. yeah. joy. 
I love it. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, her first studio gig was lip syncing. Uh, it was an editing gig, lip syncing dailies for a TV show. Then she makes her first film called Getting It Over With. I really want to watch this. Have you guys seen this? I, no, I haven't. It is about a girl trying to lose her virginity before she turns 20. Very much a very autobiographical autobiographical is that right yeah very much autobiographical yeah. uh for her she definitely dealt with this as well and share and share will also deal with this in uh clueless she graduates from afi with an mfa and shortly after gets into a car crash with a drunk driver that gives her mild amnesia and then Ugh. she gets fired from her <laughs> editing job because she couldn't find some of the footage that she had this what? is insane you, you know what i will <laughs> say that at least of, of things that have updated in our time thank god that you can't get fired because you get amnesia and not and can't find seriously something. it's crazy that that happened and a big part of getting it over with is that she as she was like going through the car crash one thought in her head she had literally submitted the final print of that movie right before the car crash and in her head was like at least i got that movie in at least i ha i got it in you know? wow that sucks yeah it's kind of amazing <laughs> so she holds a screening of getting it over with and she refers to this as one of the best days of her life it gets a great response and warner brothers and other studios are interested in her they ask her specifically though to write and direct a project that ended up falling apart between different studios stop me if you've heard this one before la showbiz people i have fucking been there too so many hours wasted on so many scripts a man named Named Art Linson, though, does give her the script for Fast Times at Ridgemont High, which yeah. was based on a real account of a guy named Cameron Crowe going undercover at a high school to find out what the kids were really like. He was a writer for Rolling Stone. Is this Cameron Crowe, Cameron Crowe? Cameron Crowe, Cameron Crowe. Oh, okay. So she gets the script and she's like, you know what? There's a bunch of bullshit in here. And actually goes and reads the Cameron Crowe book and then and then puts her own oomph in it. Totally like rewrites it, makes it so much more real, so much more raw and less it really Hollywood. is it's just such a genuine movie yes and it's not at all I, I think maybe there's a stereotype that like a female director can only make girly movies and it's not girly so not no. girly but it's got it got it like connects to both boys and girls in the movie and I really really love that movie I, I got to show it to Henry for the first time oh, which cool. made me so excited his first time yeah. wow yeah. Yeah, it Hell is yeah. interesting, and we of course talk about how it's also to in a t tonally an anomaly a little bit. It just jumps mm -hmm. in these different ways, but it does as a whole feel like high school, feel like real, and and capturing a thing in a way that reminds you of John Hughes, of mm -hmm. an adult oh, yeah. who's able to connect with the youngies. But I will say, I'm going to go ahead and say that it's a little less sexist than some of the John Hughes stuff, where sure. the girls are yeah. just as fuck up fucked up and weird and dirty as sure. the guys Oh, are. yeah. Anyway. Although I will say I did originally watch Fast Times because of Phoebe Kate's breasts, and that's because I was oh, obsessed yeah. with Drop Dead well, Fred. Well, I mean, <laughs> she's fucking hot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah All right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, just, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. just sure. deal with it. So, yeah, of course, Fast Times, uh, as uh, much like Clueless, a huge launching off point for a bunch of careers of young stars like like Phoebe Cates and Jennifer Jason Lee. And uh, then this leads to a slew of comedy hits, National Lampoon's European Vacation. Who will, cannot forget the Look Who's Talking series? I mean, I <laughs> love the Look Who's Talking I, series, yeah. personally. I do, too. Well, the, the, not the dog ones. Yeah, the, not the uh, dog You know what? I kind of even like the dog <laughs> ones. <laughs> I definitely nah. like the dog one a lot. So she did the first two, I believe. Yes, and yes. where she is standing at this point, actually, is even though you would think that this is at the top of her game, she's hit a lot of 
ups and downs and ups and downs, and even in all of this success. You can't get a break in this industry. After the Look Who's Talking films, two women filed a $20 million lawsuit against TriStar, alleging that Heckerling had plagiarized their student film about a talking baby. <laughs> the studio eventually settled. Yeah, what, a, what, a, what, a, what an original concept. <laughs> right, yeah, I mean, no one's ever thought of that before. No, and at the time, even Heckerling was like, no, no, me and my, and I don't know if it was a husband or partner, but me and my partner were just making sounds as if the baby were talking, which is why she wrote the movie. Right. And so apparently Heckerling is still legally barred from talking about the suit, but still recalls the year and a half long legal battle as a time of deep emotional exhaustion. So this is right before (laughs) she writes his TV pilot. She says, I was very bummed out when I should have finally had a moment of feeling good. It immediately turned to cry. I, I gotta say, <laughs> I don't. I don't think she copied them, but no. I feel as though I would be so, too embarrassed to take the lawsuit to court. Going, yes, I wrote, I wrote a movie about a baby, and the, the baby talks. <laughs> the baby makes <laughs> she sounds. stole it. <laughs> the baby makes people sounds. Also, getting into so now we're getting into the making uh, of Clueless, and it is a windy Hollywood story road of just misses and hits to try to actually get this to be a film called Clueless. Originally, it is Fox hitting up Cackerling to write a TV show about popular kids in a Cali high school. And it was originally ended up being called No Worries. Uh, I think that's after she added that layer of positivity. But Heckling was just like, she thought, I'll do it if I can make fun of them because she was kind of sick of doing teen stuff at that point. So we developed this script. It was a pilot for a TV show. And she thought, what have I ever done that seemed to have worked? And what kind of characters do I like seeing? I like Spicoli a lot. Everybody <laughs> loves Spicoli of from course. Fast Times to Rich High. <laughs> No, I love Spicoli, is what she said. That optimism fascinated me, and she wanted to write about someone that was the opposite of herself. Someone that didn't think about how hard something might be, and instead see everything with rose-colored glasses. Of course, Fox passes on it. But actually, why did Fox pass on it? Heckerling was being encouraged by Fox to focus more heavily on the male characters. Am I right? To oh, do that. Men. And as well, which I do think is kind of fun, is that the whole pseudo incestuous romance with Cher's stepbrother, Josh, also raised some red flags right. with executives. And Heckerling says about it, that was so silly. They were going, how can you have sex with your stepbrother? And it's like, they're not related. Their parents were briefly married and Cher's father is still nice to Josh. That's not verboten, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It is a funny, it's a funny thing. (laughs) <laughs> but it's technically not um, a crime, and we'll get into that with the with the, since it's based on the novel Emma yes. of why it was that she wrote it as such, and so Vox didn't make the movie, so they moved the script over to Paramount, and she pretty much I mean she does it pretty much she says the reason why is because of Scott Rudin yes that's the only way that it got picked up by Paramount is because he was the one that was able to get her into the room if he's connected to something he it's it, like what what is Rudin I, I I don't have it in front of me but he has made a million fucking amazing movies uh it's ridiculous I've done episodes of Whereas in the Bruiser where I've mentioned him, I think we've done episodes where we've mm-hmm. mentioned him. He is just... He's all... He's everywhere. He's a great producer. But yeah, I don't know the exact order of events. There's another filthy man that was involved <laughs> in uh, keeping this thing afloat. Because actually, it was no, a filthy show. No, we love penises. We love penises <laughs> on this show. We do. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! 
The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of McDonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. There was also, she switched agents and this one agent was like, I'm gonna, you sh- this is great. We gotta keep working on this. And I know at one point, and I don't know the exact order of events, but there is an agent switch that keeps her on the project. Then I think that's who convinces Fox. That's what happened at this time. Okay, right. Fox TV then sells the project to Fox Movies, but then the, it moves over to Paramount when uh, Scott Rudin comes in. Now, I'd like to do a brief aside about the novel Emma. Because this is like kind of one to one in ways I never realized. I remember seeing. Did you guys see the Emma? Not the most recent one, but the other one that came out with, with Gwyneth Paltrow. With, yeah, I saw. Yes. Th- I saw that one. I think in the movie theater. I remember enjoying it, but I did not realize that they were the same thing. I never saw it. Did you guys read much Goop, Jane Austen? Even. I, it was not something that was on my rotation. No. Yeah. I I wasn't really into it. I mean, I I have definitely read and seen Sense and Sensibility, but it's not Sense really Sense and I'm more of a Bronte girl. <laughs> if you want to fucking get down to it, I'm more of a Bronte bitch. <laughs> uh, so so Emma by Jane Austen. This is a protagonist who is also very positive and very rich. And Jane Austen starts the novel writing. I think this is a perfect descriptor of Cher. I am going to take a heroine whom none of no one but myself will much will much like and describes Emma as handsome, clever and rich with a comfortable home and a happy disposition and had lived nearly 21 years in the world with very little to distress or vex her. I think that is a perfect, perfect description of Cher. Emma Mm -hmm. is spoiled, stubborn, self-satisfied and happily meddles in other people's lives. Definitely loves playing matchmaker. These are the similar plot points I picked out. Uh, Emma persuades a girl, Harriet, to not marry a poor farmer, the skater boy, in favor of Mr. Elton. Even pulls the name. The same name, which Elton. is a perfect name and, for him. Right? Mm-hmm. And uh, he's a... Also, though, Elton, uh, Lexi mentioned, you know, they make the joke that uh, Dion and Cher are both de- uh, d- like uh, old pop stars. Yeah. Elton. Elton yeah. John. Yes. Yeah, so, <laughs> uh, so Mr. Elton is a social climber who thinks Emma likes him, leading to Harriet's heartbreak. And that whole plot point is in there. There's also Emma's... Even s- down to the fact that you know how he has the photograph in his locker of the one that she took. Uh-huh. They do the same thing in the book as well, really? but with a painting that she did. That's <laughs> so funny. So yes. other sim- uh, you also have... 
Uh, Emma's sister's brother-in-law. It's a little different in there. His name is Mr. Knightley. He, of course, approves of Emma's choices and doesn't like the new guy in town, Frank Churchill, which, of course, is... Who is uh, Christian. Yes, Christian. There is also a ball scene with... uh, Please, guys. (laughs) (laughs) Martin Brest. uh, You did it. (laughs) At the ball, Mr. Knightley asks Harriet to dance after being snubbed by Mr. Elton, which leads Harriet to think that they have a thing going on. Did they have a ska band at the ball? Yeah, I wish. I would. Oh, my God. I love. I, I forgot the Mighty oh, Mighty, Mighty Boston's. Uh, ew. Uh, Jeff referred to them as, man, I didn't know the tones were in this. And I was like, yuck, yuck. Get away from me. I was going to never refer to the Mighty Mighty breaker. Boston's as the tones. I was going to text you guys and ask if we could do a pop history on, just on the guy that just dances in the, in the band. Yes. Sure. Yeah, let's Kidding do me? it. I need I to wish know, I had that job. Right? I need to know where he is. I need to know. I hope he's doing well. Uh, so, yeah, and also, of course, Emma and Mr. Knightley end up together. That is all I have on Emma. Of course, there's a new Emma out, too, if you want to check it out. Yeah, and it's supposed, supposed to be, be pretty good. good. There's See, no, in the book, there's no um, reference to him being gay, right? Well, the, no, but he is betrothed to another. Yes. Okay. So this is, it is, it's the same as with where she uses the sister's brother-in-law as Mr. Knightley for Josh, is that they, she was trying to think of updated ways of which that both of them, that one of them didn't and should not have been Got with it. her, which is, went from a, someone that was married into a gay man and then cool. with Josh's character they change it into a, her sister's brother-in-law since that is a little further off that she wanted to make it because but back in the Emma times that was still too close that was mm. not something that they should have done ah. so she wanted to make it an, a, a more updated version of risque mm-hmm. without it being like without it being completely un- unconscionable is that the word or like cr- gross yes yeah <laughs> i think it simplifies a little bit too there's something about sisters brother yeah that's a lot that is a little com- and she doesn't have any siblings in it so it was a way of trying to make it a more updated thing because even as a kid i never thought that there was anything wrong with it if they were it was a flash in the pan oh, marriage yeah. well they they intro his character with them talking about how you were barely married to his mom and that was five years ago <laughs> yeah why are yeah. you even still around yeah. right but i i mean can we say i know the gush is usually a top but can we say oh my god that character when i was young hachi oh yeah reading the nietzsche by the pool are you kidding <laughs> with me with the little goatee is that oh, are you god. that part with his complaint music that was complain <laughs> rock that was what it was complain rock, rock. Was oh my so god funny. i can't wait to talk about that with uh, the soundtrack yeah. but we'll get into that so what i also love mm-hmm. is that this with the novel emma as well as in the movie that when jane austen had first written it this was the beginning of the idea in the literature world of the free indirect discourse which is essentially that keeps you the viewer and the reader from knowing all of the character secrets so this is a big thing that she also brought over from the book, Emma, is that we are following Cher and her inner monologue the entire time. So we only know it's not we're not omniscient as mm-hmm. the watcher. We only know what the character knows. And that was another huge part of Emma that was brought into Clueless. Hell yeah. So going back to the script, I am jealous of this quote from Amy Heckerling because I don't feel that I've ever felt this way about writing a script. She says, sometimes you're working on things and you think, oh, I have to write this or I'd better look at my notes. And other times you just want to. 
That was how I felt writing Cher. I just wanted to be in that world and in her mindset. I, I don't know if I've ever been that, like a script writing process has been that easy for me, but I get it because she's writing this uber positive character. And I think that that, I mean, I think we're all dealing with that right now, especially in these times where it's like, we're getting lost in these super positivity things and we're maybe stepping more away from like the more difficult type of mediums, right? That's why Clueless is so perfect. And I think she definitely got lost in that. And as she is writing this part, this character Cher, she had Alicia Silverstone in mind because those deck, ooh, those Aerosmith music videos for Cry. Oh, by the <laughs> way, all the songs sound the same. Crying, yes. amazing, and crazy. There were three videos that, that starred her and Liv Tyler. And, and the singer's daughter. Yes, which strips. was creepy and weird. It's a little, you know, it's not the yeah, Definitely more creepy than you falling in love with your ex-stepbrother. Yeah, <laughs> so uh, she, referring to Silverstone and, and Crying, she says, the one where the guy steals her purse. I just saw her and went, oh my God, look at her. She is like a kid. She is adorable. You feel for her. She is beautiful. Her performance in the video I believed everything. I just went crazy for her. So when I handed the script in, by, the, by that time, the crazy video was out and I videotaped it. I gave it to the studio and said, think of this girl when you read it. And they said, oh, Liv Tyler? And I went, no. Meanwhile, my friend, the casting director, was saying, you've got to see this girl in the crush. Well, it's the same girl. I, I do I do remember when I saw Clueless in the theater. I was it was one of those first times you go without a parent. Hell you know? yeah! I have a very distinct memory of the trailer for Empire Records. Yes, playing playing before Clueless. Oh, so hell yeah! We're so <laughs> gonna do Tyler, an episode on that. Live Tyler vehicle. Yep. That followed is, by Alicia Silverstone. Hell they were yeah. really the it girls of those. Oh yeah, years. and I know why. You know what's all in the lips. Oh yeah, mm, <laughs> Mama Mia. So are you a Liv Tyler type of gal, or are you a Alicia Silverstone type of gal, or better yet, are you Mighty Mighty Boston type of gal, or are you a Guar type of gal? I'm more of a Liv, uh, honestly. <laughs> I'm definitely more of a Liv uh, of, of people I wanted to be with. Yes. Right. Uh, people. Well, the boys were much cuter to me in Empire Records. Mm. I was obsessed with Ethan Embry's. Uh huh. Yeah, but uh-huh. Donald Faison. See, now is it? adult I'm way more into into Donald Faison totally than I, than but he I definitely am. had he needed to get braces I'm just gonna say <laughs> yeah I mean he did get rid of you know he was young he <laughs> know, was young it was, cute. It. It was we cute. are young we are uh, so for all of the high school kids speak I loved learning about this because it is so all over the place and Lexi turned to me while we were watching he was just like I learned so many slang words from the, the bomb the whatever the as oh, if yeah. there's it's so the many little yeah, totally. buzzwords that you you as a kid like learned for the very first time and she pulled from so many different places but one thing she pulled from was a slang dictionary because of course this is before the internet there's no urban dictionary and then also she would ask her quote I, I just wrote her fellow teens about things she said it depends on the context but at that time there were a lot of wonderful words and it wasn't just like oh it's teen slang because teen slang can have urban slang it can have rich kid slang it can have mm-hmm. things that come up out of prison things that come from the gay community, any group that wants to separate themselves is going to form a secret language. That's always been the way. Like Cockney, that's an awesome secret language. So I was compiling lists, and, and of course, not everybody would use the same words. Yeah, As she was great. so into it, so you brought up the the book that she was so into reading, and 
apparently, that she still has it on hand of a 1995 linguistic study that she also uses as a reference point for Clueless because she's very into getting the slang, tone, cadence, accents of people. I know that we'll get into the fact that she would actually go to a Beverly Hills high school to get into it. And I think what's interesting that I wouldn't even think about, she said that now is an updated thing, and I'm talking about currently this is an interview of not that long ago she realizes that she what she did with clueless it wouldn't be able to be done anymore the way that it was back then because teen slang has changed to a point that it's all in how it's written as opposed to how it's spoken yes and i wouldn't even think about totally and also you'd uh, be put on a sex offender registry (laughs) yeah 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 yeah, the never been kissed which she did also do uh or no 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 no, mona mona may did but which is amazing but it makes sense she's like like btw and omg it's fine when it's written but when someone says it out loud it's like why bother when oh my god is the same amount of syllables i was really i was certain that they had made some of those slangs up because i had never heard them right anywhere else like right. the jeepin one you jeepin i love jeepin jeepin'? i know she got as if from her gay friends that was like one yes. she pulled from the gay Aww. community so it's just a big melting pot of like amazing it's and it does create its own language but and yet you still fully understand it also this is jackie with the part where we get to talk about how she wrote the parts of stacy dash and Donald Faison's characters, Dion and Murray, <laughs> based on her Jewish her parents. Parents. <laughs> Which then now in watching it, because they do use Yiddish words and the way that they yeah. go at each other like that, it makes so much more sense now. I'm cavelling. <laughs> uh, she said they fight over nothing. If they're if they're in a car together, they're yelling over how to get some place. And I thought it would be funny if they were using Yiddish words. Also, there's that part where she's like. He's like, there are numbers at the top of the map. She's like, all I see are letters. He just goes, (laughs) so that scene is also as someone that recently went onto the freeway for the first time. And I, as I was turning, I realized that I was turning onto the freeway and I was in the car with um, Eddie Larson's fiance, Julie. And I looked over, I was like, I've never been on the freeway before. It's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. I was just, I was literally going, as I got onto the freeway. Yeah, a bunch of bikers drive around. Yeah. They may as well have. I definitely so got honked at because I was scared to get into the traffic for sure. Lex and I were cackling during that scene and she even said, like, I can't believe, I, I don't, I didn't remember how funny this was. This is like such it's a good so movie. So Genuine funny. laughter, genuine laughter. A movie I've probably seen at least 10 times and watching it again, I'm like just cracking up the whole time. Also, I do love is that in an interview, Heckerling was asked what her favorite line that she's the most proud of writing is. And she said, I guess in a goofy way, I've always been proud of, it does not say RSVP on the Statue of Liberty. (laughs) And I've always loved that. I was like, hell yeah, good for her that she really was like, you know what? That's gold. That's solid. Uh, So, of course, you also have another different type of speak with Christian's dialogue, because he's based on the way Frank Sinatra spoke in the 50s and the, the Rat Pack and all that. She she said, I thought we will give him his own language so that even those who speak slang say, what the hell is he talking about? <laughs> I was just having a lot of fun with that. And, uh, and of course, the famous you're a virgin who can't drive speech came from her own struggle feeling like the last American virgin. virgin. And also drive. when she was younger, mixed with her failing her driver's t- test five different times when she moved to LA. They, they really should give you guys uh, some 
alternative way to learn to drive in New York. Right. I, I always forget. It's so weird that you guys never really get the opportunity to drive a car. That or it's a, or it's a nightmare. Like my sister, who I remember when we were kids, uh, we sat in the back because Henry, my uh, our older sister is 13 and 10 years older than us, uh, respectively, of me and Henry. And when she was taking her driver's test in New York, we were, and it's a nightmare to right. drive in New York. Henry and I both were in the backseat of my mom's car caravan and we had helmets on and we screamed the entire time as she was trying to practice and that's stuff like so that funny. that's good practice it is great practice and my that's mom's like so just funny. don't listen to them just don't listen to them just ah. don't listen she's like well yeah shut that fuck up shut the fuck up <laughs> which yeah that's what i call practice <laughs> yeah it's practice for you I also want to throw in this quick anecdote before we get into uh, the casting and whatnot. Uh, the this is uh, what is the what is the name of the brand? Ali- Alaya. This is Alaya. Is yeah, it Alaya? During the this um, is an mugging, when he's like, "Get yeah. on the ground," and she complains about the label. And we and live right by that that location. We live very close to that. And we oh, pass it every day, and it looks exactly the same. <laughs> by the way, so apparently she was sitting with some agents, and they told her a story of another agent they know who essentially got together with this woman. They married, and she started dressing him up in all these fancy suits. And so all of a sudden, he's kind of like doing the thing where he's like just kind of doing that for her and he gets robbed at gunpoint at one point and he was told to get in the ground he was he actually said but this is Armani and because it, it seemed like he was more afraid of his wife's wrath than he was uh, <laughs> yeah, the man with the gun. this That's is right. also a fun quote about this is from Mona May who's the costume designer she said they gave Alicia Silverstone a mark where she could stand and we stood right around the mark and cleaned the pavement we were licking it practically they weren't going to be any black tar marks on that dress for sure <laughs> because they borrowed the Alaya dress oh, wow. and the designer didn't know we were going to do that oh, it wow. was amazing because we had unknown actors in the film and you could say you were doing a fashion movie but it doesn't really mean anything <laughs> so we were very lucky to get the designer pieces we could so that so that was an actual Alaya dress that they she didn't know was going to get on the ground so I looked on the ground too because I had seen this quote before I rewatched it and it does it's the, the cleanest spot of sidewalk that you could probably find in that gross parking lot oh yeah that parking lot's not been cleaned since that shoot it's yuck. absolutely so here here we go let's get into the casting big shout outs first of all to two different casting directors first you have carrie frazier she was the one over at fox she had actually started casting it but then it got moved over when scott rudin signed on and Marsha Ross completed it. Carrie Fraser, she did the 90s Little Women, which is an incredible cast. She did uh, Leaving Las Vegas. Marsha <laughs> Ross did 10 Things I Hate About You and The Princess Diaries and a bunch of other credits. They're both just really good at filling out like teen ensembles, filling out you know uh, uh, these like female-driven films and things like that, and they just knock it out of the park. One of my biggest things watching the movie again was just how fucking amazing every single one of these people are, and almost all of them had no, barely anything behind them. So it's just such a huge, incredible ensemble cast that came out of nowhere. Alicia Silverstone, of course, the first one to get involved. She said, "I remember when I read the script the first time, thinking, oh, she's so materialistic.'" that I was judging Cher instead of being delighted by her. I remember thinking, this is so funny, and I'm not funny. But once I was playing her, I just had so much fun being her. I loved how seriously she took everything. That's essentially how I played it. I felt like that was who Cher was. She was so sincere and so serious, and that's what I think makes her so ridiculous and lovely all the time. It's kind of like the airplane movies. 
and Leslie Nielsen. Like, playing it super straight is always way funnier than trying to be goofy and silly. And and when they talk about the casting process, they really wanted to bring in an actual teen, which Alicia Silverstone was 17 at the time. Yeah. And she had, she was right on the cusp of womanhood-ish, kind of, but she was still a kid. And she has that really charming innocence about her. Mm-hmm. And actually in that scene where she's giving the debate speech where she talks about partying with the Hadians... She actually misspelled it. She just says Hadians naturally, and they're like, oh my God, nobody tell her. That, that, that's not it's the way great. to say Apparently, it. Heckerling had to like block the Stop people yeah. from running up to her and telling her that that was the wrong way to say it so that she would keep the it's so spot moment. on. So apparently, Heckerling also confirms that Reese Witherspoon was the other closest contender to playing mm. Cher. She said she had such a strong personality and sense of self, but she would have had to act Cher. Alicia was Cher. Yeah. Right. See, I bring this up specifically because actually this morning I saw, because there's that new show out called Little Fires Everywhere, and they had an interview with Reese Witherspoon and Kerry Washington, who are the leads in it, and Reese Witherspoon was talking about this, and Kerry Washington and was like, wait a second, I was also really close to being Dion. Dion. <gasps> and she's like, maybe this is like, maybe we should, we were supposed to work together at some point in our career because Reese Witherspoon had no idea that she was also very close to playing Dion. Wow. Which I was like, that's kind of a fun that's revelation. Uh, yes, uh, just a little background on Silverstone before we move on. Born and raised in California, she began modeling when she was just six years old and got her first acting role in a Domino's pizza commercial and her first TV show gig. I totally remember this. I totally had I totally fell in love with her in this as a young kid the wonder years as Kevin's high school dream girl and I do kind of remember what, that really yeah she was on the wonder years oh yeah yeah oh, shit. we should do wonder years by the way okay that'd be fun I love this quote from uh from Frazier about uh the cast about her approach Kelsey to Grammer Uh, She said, so much of casting is about catching the actor or actress at the right time in their life. And even though you end up going, so-and-so can do the role, there was something about Alicia that was a little bit younger and a little bit more naive in a way that we felt was really the right girl. Uh, I brought in Brittany Murphy. She was just so similar, again, to the character. She was really sweet. Brittany Murphy... Adam Schroeder said Brittany Murphy came in and she was such a standout. She naturally had a funny spirit, which was great because Alicia had a different kind of comic spirit. She had a much more sardonic thing. And the chemistry between the two of them was really lovely, referring to uh, her actually and Brecken Meyer. Of course, she also had great chemistry with Alicia Silverstone. Murphy grew up in New Jersey, but moved. She, she did a T-Swift. Her, aunt, her mother, she got her mother to move her to L.A. to, to pursue acting during her high school years. And she'd been training and singing dance dancing and acting since she was just four years old. Before Clueless, she did a bunch of TV work on shows like Blossom, and I had to write this down because I loved this show, and I just want to bring it up. Parker Lewis Can't Lose, which is like, <laughs> do you guys remember I that I don't one? know. I don't know that show. I, I remember Parker the name. I don't, know, I don't remember the show, but I remember the title. It was like kind of a Ferris Bueller, essentially. Ooh, okay. Yeah. Uh, and Heckerling said, when I met Britney, I was like, I love her. I want to take care of her. She was just so bouncy and giggly and just so young. I mean, when you saw her, you just smiled, which is actually kind of sad in hindsight. So next they have the role of Josh. Uh, Heckerling had the beastie boy Adam Horowitz in mind when she wrote the role. And uh, Marsha Ross, now Marsha Ross has taken over for Carrie Fraser. Carrie Fraser was so sad to have to let go of this project, by the way. It really bummed her out. But Marsha Ross brings in Paul Rudd. 
Mostly raised in Kansas, Rudd went to on to study theater at the University of Kansas before moving to the American yummy, Academy of yummy, Dramatic yummy, Arts and then the yummy. British American Drama Academy in Oxford. Jackie, calm mm. down. Yeah, total, a total like theater Smoke kid show. He is, if you listen to the behind the scenes stuff from that time, he is such a fucking dork. Yeah. He's and such he a dork. Looks like such a dork, which is why I love him. Well, apparently, too, <laughs> the whole thing was when he first came in and met Amy Heckerling, he made like a corny Shakespeare joke about like preparing his monologue, and she legitimately laughed at it. And that's like how the two of them hit it off. So, yeah, that's he's a great. total theater nerd. He gets his first acting role in 1992 on the TV drama Sisters and then on the TV show Wild Oats for six episodes in 94. But that was it. And you're going to see this over and over again. If you've noticed, Barely any credits so far for any of these actors. Now, let's move on to the role of Travis. Um, this one came down actually to Seth Green, which does not surprise me at all. Does make sense. And Brecken Meyer. Meyer went to the same yeah. elementary school as Drew Barrymore, and apparently they shared their first kiss. Oh my that god, time. that's yeah. cute. Man, Brecken Meyer and Seth Green are they've been battling for the short yes. boy in the movie short parts. stoner boy yes. yes since they were little kids uh-huh yeah, yeah, yeah i mean remember can't hardly wait that's another one i would love oh to. my yes. god i love that movie yeah for sure have you heard sling tv offers the news you love for less hey wait you look and sound just like me i am you i'm the same news programs on sling tv for less you mean you're me but for less money a lot less i'm all the favorite news programs and more on sling tv starting at just 40 dollars a month Everything great about me, but for less money, which makes me greater, don't you think? Get the news you love and more for less. Start saving today. Visit sling.com to see your offer. Sling. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. And so Meyer was spotted by Drew Barrymore's agent in elementary school and was signed just mainly to do commercial work throughout his childhood, though he does later start getting typecast in druggy dude roles with stuff like Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare, and all sorts of Oh my of god, things. remember? I forgot how funny it was when he looks at his... When he looks at his report card and gets up to try and jump out the first story window. (laughs) And that's again, just another one of those jokes where it's like, that's that's ridiculous. It's very funny. Chef's kiss. Stacey Dash, the oldest member of this ensemble cast, uh, she claims she knew the part was hers when she read the sides they sent and went in and killed it while having great chemistry with Silverstone. Uh, Stacey Dash was born in the Bronx and went to high school in New Jersey, got her first TV gig in 1982. It was a failed pilot, and a few years later was in an episode of The Cosby Show. Boo! Weirdly booing it in hindsight at 19. She goes on to play parts in various TV and films. It's not The Cosby Show's fault. Oh, it's it's in the DNA of it. Uh, And she does some TV and films, but this is really her big breakout role. Heckerling said, in my brain, Dion was like royalty. I love this quote, by the way. I wanted someone that felt like they were part of a royal family in some country somewhere. So they weren't acting snotty. They were just in a different realm. Stacy had that. She didn't have to act like I'm a snotty bitch. She 
She just had that feeling of power and grace as though she was ready to wave the uh, wave to the public. And I think you get that again, fine line here. Like D she could be such a hateable character and she kills it. No, and she's I think so it's very great. much that sentiment. So yes. charming. Stacey totally. Dash is a, a, a human. It makes me a little bit sad now. Yeah, but yes. I know. Man, she's just so... So beautiful in that movie, mm -hmm. still is, and, and charming. Just so charming, so like she really found that balance between being such like a a, a c word, <laughs> a, a corn child, a corn yeah, <laughs> a corn ball, a cor it's cornball. <laughs> <laughs> also, she is yeah, she's in her late twenties when she gets twenty eight. I also yeah, love that she looks on her great. Wikipedia, it's it's I, it's kind of like the Mariah Carey thing. They don't know exactly how old she is. She's either like 56 or 57 at this point. Yeah, they're like, she won't tell us. <laughs> no, she's 49 forever. So actually, Dave Chappelle was super up for the role of Murray, but of course it oh, goes. Oh, that would have been I know, great. right? But Donald Faison is amazing in this movie. Oh, yeah, I mean, no. he's even talking he's about how every moment he is in this movie, he is like stealing the scene. He is making you laugh. So it makes... So much sense that he would go on to have a great career, of course, with Squirrel. Well, also, it makes sense because the Heckerling had said he was just amazing, talking about Dave Chappelle for the role. He was just amazing. He was such a mensch, but I needed somebody <laughs> who was a really innocent, goofy yeah. kid. Yes. yes. And that is what Donald Faison is. Totally. A thousand percent. I, I've heard him talk, too, about, because he was about 18 when they were shooting this mm. and just talking about how intimidated he was, he was going to have to make out with this with beautiful 28-year-old. He said, he said, I remember when they called me and told me I got the part and me telling all my friends that I was going to be kissing Stacey Dash and them chasing me around the complex that I live in. <laughs> so cute. <laughs> and yeah, he had only done a minor commercial and TV work up to that point. And then you have... Jeremy Sisto is next. Uh, he read for a few different parts before getting And this makes open. so much sense mm -hmm. because I've been watching Six, Six Feet, Feet Under, Under yeah. and I haven't looked up, I haven't looked into him and I was like, that's why I knew immediately that this motherfucker was going to be a creepazoid is because of Clueless. Yes. Because he plays a creepy, well, he plays a dude with a very rough mental illness in Six yeah, Feet Under. he's more Under douchey well. in Clueless, wow. but still, I think he gravitates more to, to the villain. He said, I decided to read for Elton because I thought he was funny it just seemed like more fun to do the more extreme character like the worst of the bunch as opposed to the romantic guy so yeah i think it was originally He's great at it other. yeah he kills yeah it. and he had he done he did some films he did grand canyon starring kelvin klein and steve martin in 1991 uh his actually he first appeared his first appearance is in the twisted sister music video we're not going to take it in 1984 Whoa, <laughs> all right <laughs> Uh, so actually, actually, but actually, motherfucking Sarah Michelle Geller was originally cast as Amber. Unfortunately, and fuck you, all my children, all my children wouldn't release her for just two weeks to go do the movie. And they put their foot down on it, so they dropped her and picked up Alyssa Donovan, who had studied acting at the New School in NYC, then moved to L.A. in 94 and got her first acting gig on, again, Blossom. We also have to do an episode on Blossom, y'all. Uh, Adam Schroeder said, I remember she reminded us of Anne Margaret. It's an old school reference, but she had this kind of sexy ginger beauty. She got the wit and cynicism of Amber. You want her to be one of those characters you love to hate, but you don't really hate her, which I think is a perfect description of that. Character. Yeah, and I oh, really, yeah. I'm glad they went with a, a redhead for the weird, the weird bitch character. I oh, guess, yeah. Is what she is. Yeah, totally. 
Now you have Justin Walker, probably the funnest uh, rags to riches story. He was in a total rut when he got the role of Christian. Marsha Ross said, we were having a really tough time casting this, and I can understand why off of this quote. You had to find a person who kind of was gorgeous that you could have this crush on, but you didn't want, oh yeah, he's gay. He had to be different from the other guys. And he was literally working at a bar next to MSG and NYC, next to Madison Square Garden in New York City, when he had the call with his agent on a fucking payphone he was so broke and he got the part and he literally just started running down 8th Avenue that's amazing and he would have just looked like everyone else around Madison Square Garden because everyone's insane down there Yeah, so they would have just not even noticed him running I also feel like that was the first instance of a gay character in a comedy that wasn't just like ha you know what I mean totally and also another thing as a child that I did not pick up on was all the gay references like whenever he's not paying attention friend of Dorothy well Uh. the part you know the part where they're at the club and yeah. she's going look how he's not paying attention to I all the other girls so good uh, so I before we get in uh, before Jackie takes us on a trip down Fashion Avenue I wanted to just Fashion end with this very heartwarming quote from Paul Rudd after the table read we all went and got a bite to eat we went to a place not far around the corner that I used to go to which was kind of a bar They probably should not have let some of those kids in. I do remember all of us sitting around saying, how cool is it that we're all going to do a movie about kids our own age and having that conversation about the John Hughes movies of our generation. It had been a while since there was one of those. How cool would it be if this thing had legs? Then it kind of did. And I just love that apparently they all still talk. They sit like Amy Eckerling had just done an interview last year. She's like, actually, yeah, I hung out with Paul Rudd. Uh, a couple weeks ago, Hell we got yeah. lunch. It's like, I'd love that they made lifetime connections with each other. Sure. And uh, it makes me really excited. But now, even more exciting, it's time to talk about the fashion. fashion. Oh, <laughs> so when Eckerling was writing the Clueless script, she knew that the character's clothing would be integral because it would, quote, be one of the areas of comedy, that the characters would rag on each other's clothing, she had told us. So growing up in New York City... Amy Eckerling, as we know, was not a huge fashionista, but she definitely went to school with some of them. She said, I went to an art and design high school with a lot of people taking fashion. They would get up in the morning, and what they put on meant a lot to them. There was a very creative element to what a young person feels like they can do and wear. I wanted to have fun with it and make it look pretty. So she brought on Mona May, the costume designer, who worked on Clueless as well as Never Been Kissed, The Wedding Singer, Romeo and Michelle's High School Reunion. I mean, the fashion in that movie. The fashion in these, like, this woman knows what she's fucking doing. And she not only worked well with Amy Heckerling, but they had worked together previously on a pilot, which is why Heckerling immediately knew who she wanted to call to work on this movie with her. And that is the mark of a good director. You don't have to be good at every single aspect but you have to understand when you need other people to fill in those gaps and know like I don't know fashion but I know I need to have this fashion I need to find the right person it's exactly like why Tarantino's movies always like sparkles because he knows how to get the costume people there even though he looks like he's been sleeping on a couch right (laughs) and what's also really cool is that we all know that this is a great this is a, a movie that is great 
for women. It's great women characters. It's got a, a, a female writer and director, but then the costume director, the costume designer is also a woman, and we'll get to it later. The music supervisor is also a woman, and they, they and she, and Amy Heckerling knew exactly who she wanted to do each role in this movie, which, what a vision. This is a, like, that, what astounds me about Amy Heckerling is not only is she good at what she does, but she's a very good at directing the whole picture at like as opposed to going in like I know what this part's gonna look like but we'll just hire somebody else to do this other shit right. it's exactly. not my job exactly yeah but she realizes that all of this is her job right exactly what's cool and what sets Mona May apart from some costume designers is that she'd started her career as a fashion designer mm. so Mona May came into this saying I was acting as a fashion designer by trying to create trends something very fresh and new that wasn't really reflected on the streets or in the culture yet that was so cool because that kind of creativity doesn't usually happen often in a film especially with fashion she says amy is so into fashion she gets it the way the film is shot you see head to toe outfits and fuzzy backpacks we worked it out with the director of photography so you could see the details of the fashion and she had the idea for the rotating closet She's just a visionary. Oh, man, and just the, such a fantasy. And that computer program <laughs> yes, at the beginning. Yes, the computer program. Clothes. So, uh, which also, it now, of course, looks, looks so dated. So but dated. when we were kids, when I saw it first, I was like, oh, that's so cool. <laughs> we'll never get past the technology. This is the end. And just the, the sheer, watching it again with an eye for it a little bit more, the sheer number of looks in this movie is overwhelming. Cher has 56 outfit changes <laughs> in the movie. Insane. Insane. Wow. And all of them look so good. Man, I will say, did I want to have a full plaid outfit that would actually make me look good? <laughs> I don't know if it exists. It might be out there somewhere, but I haven't found it Girl, yet. You can do it. I uh, I, I was completely molded fashion-wise by this movie. <laughs> and to this day, I still wear clueless themed clothes. Oh yeah. A lot, of, a lot of thigh high like socks. Stuff I wear things. those still to yes, this day. Totally. And we will get time. into why they are thigh high specifically <laughs> socks in a minute. I oh can I just throw into um with the Mona May, she it it it's strange to me that she's not as synonymous with this movie as say in Sex in the City, Patricia Field is part of the storyline. She's, like oh, yeah. she's like a character in the movie, yeah. She's yes. so well known. And Mona May isn't really, she doesn't even, I couldn't find a fucking Wikipedia page wow. about her. She has, she has developed the image of so many movies that have been so important in our generation. And she, she doesn't really get recognized the same way for some reason. I don't yeah. know if it's because she chooses to be more private, but it's. I think it's a travesty, and I don't think she should be hiding, and I don't think she should have her privacy. No, and that's why we are here today celebrating her alongside of Amy Even Heckerling. if she doesn't want it. No, we're here. That's what we're doing today. Because <laughs> both Amy Heckerling and Mona May were, at the time, horrified by the 90s grunge fashion. And they have a sequence, of course, in the movie that was perfectly displays why one should be horrified of that fashion. This is what this quote is great. She says, "This is what Amy Heckerling says. says I couldn't believe those low riding pants were hanging on as long as they did. <laughs> You'd look at guys and think." Why would I want to see a belt below your tushy and think, <laughs> "Ooh, he's cute." I would look at them and go, "Ugh." Sound familiar? 
cue all the young dudes. Oh, which is her actual, it was her actual thought of looking at the as if. Yeah. Because yeah, your pants are your pants are falling down. Get away oh, from get me. Your pants I'm up. keeping it real. I'm keeping it real. Oh my god, I love I'm keeping it real. And Holden, apparently, please start dressing like this. Please. <laughs> oh my god. Please, please, please. No, I want. I like Christian's looks. Oh yeah, you want to get a little rat packy with maybe, it? Maybe, maybe. And I never really thought about this before, but now it makes sense that so with the, how they dress, how Cher and Dion would dress, they wanted to incorporate the grunge look into their outfits, but also making it smart feminine and mm-hmm. flattering mm-hmm. which is why they wore so much plaid, plaid so it yeah, was totally. current but it was their own style with it and I never thought about that before because they just assumed since there was no internet at the time that Sharon Dion would look to runway styles mm-hmm. to inform their closets and that they also had the money to fly to European fashion shows to see what was going on overseas now this is kind of fun So it's the -the over-the-knee socks that are such a huge trend in this movie. So Amy Heckerling said, The one thing that I totally loved and wanted, which was out of style when we did the movie, was over-the-knee socks. Over-the-knee socks remind me of the 1920s silent films and the stars of the era who wore the rolled-down stockings because Amy Heckerling loved classic Mm -hmm. musicals. So they sort of referenced that in Cabaret when Liza Minnelli was singing Mine Air. And I love the way she looks in that scene. I guess it's because I hate every other part of my body, but I have thin thighs. (laughs) And she makes it very clear that Cher wears over-the-knee socks, not knee socks, because Heckerling hates knee socks. Well, over-the-knee socks, they also represent this sort of subtle sexuality where, I mean, you can obviously just wear thigh highs with like lingerie and it's lingerie, but you can wear... Over the knee socks, and you see you can be wearing something like relatively conservative on the top, but it's this little like image of your thighs and that just like piece a mat. Thigh. You remember the skin under there. Oh yeah, <laughs> and it's such a fun, sexy thing to to put an outfit together. Yeah. Although this isn't necessarily clothes, but shout outs to Amber's hair all throughout the movie, which just changes so drastically and amazingly in every shot. I'm like, God, it was taking up eight hours just to give her that hair. And hey, that was, Ambular. They, that was their favorite because they knew that Cher and Dion, they wanted them to, for people to be able to watch the movie and be like, I could do that. Mm-hmm. I could be them. Mm-hmm. I can at least have a part of that. But Amber's role was to be a caricature. Re- she was a caricature yes. of it. Yeah. And that's where they actually had the most fun. Hell yeah. Is because like, she really just let Mona May like, do whatever the fuck she wanted. She had a lot of themed outfits. Yes. Because they wanted her, I think, to look a little bit like a cartoon. Uh And she definitely did. (laughs) Now, what I love is that a lot of the looks that they had figured out, because they didn't have a lot of money for clothing. Which is crazy, because they all had... A thousand outfits, outfits. Yeah. and that's why. So they wanted to make each one stand out. So what Mona May did is that they would mix high and low fashion. She said that which we is had, still such a rad thing to do. Yes, and it's like so they had high end designers, but they also had mall clothes, and they did a lot of thrifting, and then they would alter the clothes to make every outfit seem cohesive and down to the T that it was organized you know what I mean mm-hmm. like she wanted nails to match the hair to match the every the shoes to match whether you see them in the scene or not she wanted all of it just in case the DP decided to show all of it mm-hmm. and uh, and Mona May does recognize what the movie clueless 
did for fashion. She said it was the first movie really about fashion. And I think what's so amazing is how many women are impacted by that film all over the world, from my friend's daughter who's 17 in Berlin watching Clueless with her friends to women who are in their 40s. One thing that I'm so proud of is that it really touched hearts and it's still being emulated. And there were many others after like Legally Blonde and Mean Girls, mm-hmm, but they never had that same impact because Clueless was the first. No, it's it's absolutely true. And um, what excites me too, and it made me, <laughs> I've looked at it a lot harder, is that Mona May's favorite outfit in it is the Dolce & Gabbana yellow suit outfit mm, mm-hmm. that the intro one the the intro iconic one. Yeah. yeah yeah because she wanted alicia silverstone to stand out mm-hmm. and what's great she's like most people can't pull off yellow the way alicia could pull off yellow right. so it did because that's what we all remember i yeah, so I'll I'll iconic it was even of course they did a whole p- a parody for the fancy music video with yeah the, I'm Iggy. so fancy. Charlie XCX and Iggy Azalea. I mean, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, it's just such an iconic look and, and vibe. Also, a fun fact about Mona May, that uh, Clueless was her first feature doing as the costume designer alone, but before that, she was the assistant costume designer for Mom and Dad Save the World. Oh which my has, God, she was! Yeah, cause, which has some of the craziest wardrobe choices in the entire history of film. <laughs> if you haven't seen that movie, that movie. you got to see it, because it's bonkers i actually haven't watched that in forever and i would like to watch it again it's on hbo hell yeah, hell yeah. <laughs> and i did want to just bring up real quick the hats the hats the hats, the hats. The hats. and amy heckerling oh wanted- have you been shopping with dr seuss lately <laughs> amy heckerling wanted desperately for hats to be involved in these outfits she said i always get hats but never have the nerve to wear them hats are a thing that are really stylish but you have to have the confidence to pull it off and Sharon Dion do. At the time, there was that rave culture where for a brief moment in time, people were being more creative with their clothing and you would see a lot of crazy hats at raves, like a top hat or a Dr. Seuss hat. And Mona found a way to make them stylish, which, because that was another thing. I always wanted to wear hats like that. I can't wear hats like that. Well, then again, this is up to you. I need you to change your fashion into this. All right, I'm doing it. You know what you need, Holden? You need one of those... The flouncy right. hats that with the like the little poof in the center uh, that have the little bill yeah. on the front. Right. I'd be oh, yeah, one of the dudes is wearing yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, are we uh, want to get into the filming? Uh, Let's as jump. We get get near to the uh, close of this app. Producers actually sat in on classes at Beverly Hills High School to get a feel for the culture, which I thought was interesting. Also, the drama teacher at that school played a small sort scene as the principal. The campus, uh, including the tennis courts, outdoor cafeteria, quad, and classrooms, all were shot at Occidental College in L.A. Do you guys know where that is? If you want to take a trip, you can revisit all the old scenes. No, but we do definitely go to the Westfield Fashion Square in Sherman Oaks. Hell yeah, all the mall scenes. Yeah, it's like we're close to that, and I didn't realize that's where they filmed until I was researching this, and I was like, I go there! I've been there because I share! And uh, filming had a 40-day shooting schedule that was supposed to happen in November and December of 1994. However, production was halted because Silverstone, fucking working so hard, developed a bunch of stomach ulcers, and she had to take a bunch of time off so they ended up 
going back to it in January, and it was a weirdly wet January, which is strange in L.A. or in California. Uh, and so they had issues with flooding. They actually had to move the Mighty Mighty Boss Tone scene from outdoors to indoors. Also, the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones totally got super bored on set and just got hammered on vodka, apparently, <laughs> which is hilarious. <laughs> So, yeah, God. they were apparently uh, difficult assholes. to deal with. I think apparently they were only doing it because they had a bunch of, like, tax debts that they were dealing with at the time. So it was a bit of a reluctant st- uh, cameo for them. But they Such weren't even... 90 They hadn't even blown issue. up yet, like, hugely. Uh, Brecken Meyer at, was an actual skateboarder. And so he did most of his own skating, which actually led to an injury during the skate competition. He did that halfpipe shit, and uh, he sprained his ankle. Uh, doing oh, that, that sucks. Shit. Yeah, totally. Also, Brittany Murphy was just 17 at the time of the shooting, and so she had to have her mother on set with her at all times. Also, her mother was apparently going through breast cancer through that shoot, and she was being like such a fucking trooper holding it together. Oh, uh, her mother man. did get better, uh, so at least there's that. But yeah, she was, I think, under a lot of emotional stress and weight during the filming. Uh, so yeah, uh, this fucking movie was shot on a budget of like $13 million dollars. It uh, comes out in the summer 1995, becomes this massive sleeper hit. To give you context, it it, uh, finished opening weekend second, just behind Apollo 13. That takes me back. That takes me back hugely. And it grossed over $56 million during its theatrical run, which is just such a huge success. And no one saw it coming. It came out of absolutely nowhere. And just, just, you know, fucking became this giant, iconic hit. And then, of course... And years later, everyone's getting it on VHS, DVD, watching it on HBO. And uh, Jackie, now I, I'm pretty much done here. I just want to finish up by talking about this motherfucking soundtrack. This soundtrack, guys. Why was it so great and memorable? First of all, it was a wonderful mix of pop, alt rock, and hip hop. And because Amy Heckerling brought in Karen Rockman, I believe that's how you say her last name. Sure. Rockman was the <laughs> music supervisor on a bunch of great films in the era. Pulp Fiction, Boogie Nights, Reservoir Dogs. Hell yeah. And working with Heckerling, Rockman chose songs that would turn already funny scenes into memorable ones and introduced a lot of American kids to then up-and-coming acts in the process. So in 1995, soundtracks were so crucial as a selling point for a film that Capitol Records backed Rockman's efforts with a $1 million advance just for making... The soundtrack for it. So what I love and what I never realized about before is that they really incorporated what each character's music's tastes were into the creation of the character. So you've got Cher. Cher likes bubbly alt-pop and the occasional happy-go-lucky hip-hop track when she's at a vowel party. But musical typecasting isn't always presented in the form of a backing track. So this kind of blew my mind a little bit and it made me very excited. Like with Travis when he's in the scene and he raises his hand and goes, uh, he asks Mr. Hall, the way I feel about Rolling Stones is the way my kids are going to feel about Nine Inch Nails. So I shouldn't torment my mom, right? <laughs> Obviously, he listens to Nine Inch Nails. That's so That funny. makes so much so sense. And in part of creating, what when actually doing the filming, they talked about what each character's music taste would be. Again, never thought about it before, when Elton asked to leave the class <laughs> because he can't find his cranberry, cranberry CD, CD. And then he's playing it, and then he's singing it to her the in the singing car. singing away. Oh, God. Oh, God. It's so... Uh, I, I also, love the cranberries, I think, I think, but at the time, there was a stigma. Sure. <laughs> I, I think that we should leave rooms more by saying, I have to go to the quad, and I left my cranberry CD over there. <laughs> cranberry CD? Uh, I can't find my cranberry CD. <laughs> <laughs> and 
I this is this made me smile. As someone I dig Radiohead, but Tom York is a bit of a bumblefuck, I'm gonna go ahead and Whoa. say. So you, you better watch out for them Yorkies. I oh, sorry, Yorkies, <laughs> I apologize. <laughs> Get it? It's like a dog. Now Paul Rudd is introduced, the character Josh is introduced by way of calling him the maudlin music of the university station, as Cher begrudgingly calls it. He, she says, what is it about college and crybaby music? Because Josh loves Radiohead. Rockman said that Heckerling considered Radiohead to be a one Whiny, whiny band. <laughs> Rockman was initially nervous to ask Radiohead if she could feature the song in the film, especially since Cher refers to them as maudlin and whiny. So at this point, when Tom York saw that the music was referred to as crybaby music in Clueless, his response was, Fuck you. We're for 3D people. <laughs> what? Okay. What I, mean? I feel like I feel like Tom York got like less douchey, I feel like, as the years went on, but he was in his bullshit back when Creep At was that like, time. I mean, there's well, like a documentary yeah. of, uh, of of them and Tom York's just on stage like rolling his eyes, holding the microphone out while everyone sings Creep, just like mad that it's a huge hit. Like he was one of those. Yeah, he's sure. like resentful that yeah. people like his music. I mean, I love Radiohead. I love Radiohead. I do, yeah, too. but he's he's a little bit of a again a bumblefuck, right? And I was always curious why "I'm Just a Girl, No Doubt" song is not on the soundtrack. Mm-hmm. So when Clueless was released, Tragic Kingdom hadn't been released Whoa, yet. Really? So it was in the movie, but since the release wasn't going to be out until later on that year, and the Tragic Kingdom was put out by Trauma Records. And every all of the other musicians on the album were all backed by Capitol Records, so they didn't want them on the album. Gotcha. Which does make label sense. People, man, Tragic Kingdom was such an explosion, dude. Right? After that. right? So they didn't Fuck. even need it. But right. they, I mean, if it, but what if this could have? I don't know. Even better. And it something. went. Yeah. And it went gold in its first year, and it ends up going platinum uh, after a few years. So this, yeah. this soundtrack is iconic. Yeah. Uh, and. I had no idea that the song, of course, that we started this episode with, I want to be a supermodel. I didn't realize that the song was written for the movie. Oh, wow. So Rockman conscripted her collaborators, David Cate, David Bearwald, and Brian McLeod to write Supermodel before enlisting Jill Sobule to record the song. So David Barwild told Flavorwire, he said, I remember thinking, I don't know how teenage girls think. So I got an issue of Sassy Magazine, and I read the letters to the editor. I think I even got lyrics from the letters page. Every demographic has its way of talking, and I wanted to capture a sense of the rhythm and the kinds of things girls were talking about. I thought Sassy was really cool. But what is fun, so Jill Sobule was the one that originally sang the Katy Perry song, I Kissed a Girl. Katy Perry, I Kissed a Girl song is a different song than the I Kissed a Girl from the 90s. Oh, okay. So she just was, okay. You know, so Jill's always, every every generation needs their girl, kissed a girl song, you know? It's just right. very- It tasted like me, only better. <laughs> so Jill Sobule, Jill Sobule was known for singing I Kissed a Girl at this point in time. So she was brought on to sing I Want to Be a Supermodel. She agreed to sing this only if she could add some input, which resulted in a lyric about anorexia. Uh-huh. She told Nylon, so I thought I'm going to add in the I didn't eat yesterday, I didn't eat today, and I didn't eat tomorrow, so I'm gonna be a supermodel. 
uh-huh. to bring some social consciousness to it. In the 80s, for three years, I had an eating disorder. So it came to me and I had my three cents, my kind of sense of humor, but with a purpose. So she thought she really thought the clueless was going to be some dumb teenage movie, but changed her tune after seeing the film. She said, I saw the movie and thought it was freaking great. It was feminist and I thought this was going to be good for girls. I was surprised and hated myself for having a bad <laughs> attitude at first. <laughs> so that was, uh, so, you know, it's a great soundtrack. Yeah. And we also uh, feel we would be remiss in not bringing up the fact that Clueless was turned into a television series. Yes. For three years that was also created and backed by Amy Heckerling. I love how it was a failed TV project. That became yes. this giant hit movie that led to a successful Another, TV Another, and I for, completely forgot about the television show. Uh-huh. I remember kind of watching it. Yeah. I th- I thought the girl who played Cher was great, but just, it's hard to compete with Alicia Silverstone's oh, yeah. performance of Cher. So but good. also they had like some of the same cast, which and is And had Stacey Dash, yes. had Donald Faison, had yeah. Lisa Donovan and Wallace Shawn, and Rachel Blanchard from, but I remember because I remembered her from Are You Afraid of the oh, Dark? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So oh, she yeah, played totally. Cher. Yeah, yeah right? right? Yeah. Also, the woman who plays uh, Mrs. Guy- Miss Geist. Uh, Twinkie. Tw- twink. Twinkle Toes. <laughs> she was also an associate producer and I think a friend of Amy Heckerling. She was, yes. Oh, and cool. She's great. And she also produced on the show. And I think she also Twink plays Kaplan. Twink Kaplan. Yeah. Hell yeah. Yeah. So I think she was also on the show. I was just going to leave off with this. Just that I love that it was based on Emma by Jane Austen, which is a period piece. Film. We have a new period piece film coming out. And now I watch Clueless as a period piece. It, but th- from the music to the looks to the dialogue, the slang, it is just so a perfect capture of the mid-90s and especially to be a kid in the mid-90s that it will always live in my heart as that. Like if I just want to go back to that time and place, this is it. And I just love that we have these period pieces now that we can go to and that it is just such a innocent, fun, not like make you upset period piece, you know? Yeah. And I was a little upset when we were talking about not too long ago that apparently there is a new Clueless television show mm. coming out that I was a little upset about it until I read this description, which kind of makes me interested. It is written by Jordan Redout and Gus Hickey, who did Will and Grace. The new Clueless is like Mean Girls meets Riverdale meets a Lizzo music video oh. because it's about Cher going missing and Dion steps up as the queen bee of the high school <laughs> while also dealing with the mysteries of where did the queen bee go weird i'm not saying i'm gonna love it but i am (laughs) saying i'm gonna watch i mean i'll look i'll look at it i'll give it a look uh i would uh, end by saying that um i love amy heckerling is amazing she's one of my i'm gonna say it she rose Whoa, <laughs> Shiro! She's a great Shiro. Also, uh, Mona May, great Shiro. And uh, if you want to catch a glimpse of her, at the if you want to watch Clueless again at the very end scene, uh, you see that shares one of the bridesmaids. The other bridesmaid is Amy Heckerling. She does a little cameo, and then in the scene where they're doing the um, bouquet toss when they're all fighting, Amy Heckerling wanted to be in that scene and help them out because she really wanted them to like get vicious with it so she's like she gets in the middle of it and starts pushing everybody and it's pretty funny it is a little i'm gonna say almost a little sad oh yeah that she has the two teenagers that set her up as her bridesmaids no definitely there's a lot of sad things going on but 
<laughs> I love that Amy Heckerly makes a little cameo there at the end. Hell yeah, and I love love, and I love Clueless. Hell yeah. And watch it again because it really does, it makes you not think about anything else and just remember the good times of our youths. And the bad times. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, no, there's some bad times. So thank too. you so much for joining us. If you'd like to support us further, go to patreon.com forward slash page seven podcast. Uh, we've got weekly episodes coming out and much, much more these days. We're going to be putting a lot of content on there for just $5 a month, so please check us out there. Also, you can find me on twitch.tv forward slash Ho. Jackie joins me every Friday night for us to do uh, shenanigans. Uh, essentially, we get drunk and uh, you guys watch it. Uh, Which is fun! Thank you guys so much for joining us this week. You can follow me on Instagram at jackthatworm. We love you guys so much. Please be safe out there and uh, we'll see you next week. Oh, yeah. Um, Na- Na- Natalie? Oh, did you not? I'm sorry. I thought you started <laughs> She didn't sign off yet. <laughs> oh, I'm Natalie Jean. You can follow me at the Natty Jean on Instagram and Twitter and TikTok and all that crap. And you can also follow Page7LPN at on Instagram and on TikTok. Hell yeah. Bye. Bye. This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors. You can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes. The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Donald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.